Lecture six, part two of Pragmatism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Pragmatism by William James. Yet in the choice of these man-made formulas, we cannot be capricious with impunity any more than we can be capricious on the common sense practical level. We must find a theory that will work, and that means something extremely difficult. For our theory must mediate between all previous truths and certain new experiences. It must derange common sense and previous belief as little as possible, and it must lead to some sensible terminus or other that can be verified exactly. To work means both these things, and the squeeze is so tight that there is little loose play for any hypothesis. Our theories are wedged and controlled as nothing else is. Yet sometimes alternative theoretic formulas are equally compatible with all the truths we know, and then we choose between them for subjective reasons. We choose the kind of theory to which we are already partial. We follow elegance or economy. Clerk Maxwell somewhere says it would be poor scientific taste to choose the more complicated of two equally well-evidenced conceptions, and you will all agree with him. Truth in science is what gives us the maximum possible sum of satisfactions, taste included, but consistency both with previous truth and with novel facts is always the most imperious claimant. I have led you through a very sandy desert, but now, if I may be allowed so vulgar an expression, we begin to taste the milk in the coconut. Our rationalist critics here discharge their batteries upon us, and to reply to them will take us out from all this dryness into full sight of a momentous philosophical alternative. Our account of truth is an account of truths in the plural of processes of leading realized in rebus and have only this quality in common that they pay they pay by guiding us into or toward some part of a system that dips at numerous points into sense percepts which we may copy mentally or not but with which at any rate we are now in the kind of commerce vaguely designated as verification Truth for us is simply a collective name for verification processes, just as health, wealth, strength, etc. are names for other processes connected with life, and also pursued because it pays to pursue them. Truth is made, just as health, wealth, and strength are made, in the course of experience. Here rationalism is instantaneously up in arms against us. I can imagine a rationalist to talk as follows. Truth is not made, he will say. It absolutely obtains, being a unique relation that does not wait upon any process, but shoots straight over the head of experience and hits its reality every time. Our belief that yon thing on the wall is a clock is true already, although no one in the whole history of the world should verify it. The bare quality of standing in that transcendent relation is what makes any thought true that possesses it, whether or not there be verification. 
you pragmatists put the cart before the horse in making truth's being reside in verification processes these are merely signs of its being merely our lame ways of ascertaining after the fact which of our ideas already has possessed the wondrous quality the quality itself is timeless like all essences and natures thoughts partake of it directly as they partake of falsity or of irrelevancy it can't be analyzed away into pragmatic consequences the whole plausibility of this rationalist tirade is due to the fact to which we have already paid so much attention in our world namely abounding as it does in things of similar kinds and similarly associated one verification serves for others of its kind and one great use of knowing things is to be led not so much to them as to their associates especially to human talk about them the quality of truth obtaining anterim pragmatically means then the fact that in such a world innumerable ideas work better by their indirect or possible than by their direct and actual verification truth ante rem means only verifiability then or else it is a case of the stock rationalist trick of treating the name of a concrete phenomenal reality as an independent prior entity and placing it behind the reality as its explanation Professor Mack quotes somewhere an epigram of Lessing's. Sagt Hanschen Schlau zu Vetter Fritz. Wie kommt es, Vetter Fritzen, dass grad die Reichsten in der Welt das meiste Geld besitzen? Hanschen Schlau here treats the principle wealth as something distinct from the facts denoted by the man's being rich. It antedates them the facts become only a sort of secondary coincidence with the rich man's essential nature in the case of wealth we all see the fallacy we know that wealth is but a name for concrete processes that certain men's lives play a part in and not a natural excellence found in Messrs. rockefeller and carnegie but not in the rest of us like wealth health also lives in rebus it is a name for processes as digestion circulation sleep etc that go on happily though in this instance we are more inclined to think of it as a principle and to say the man digests and sleeps so well because he is so healthy with strength we are i think more rationalistic still and decidedly inclined to treat it as an excellence pre-existing in the man and explanatory as the herculean performances of his muscles with truth most people go over the border entirely and treat the rationalistic account as self-evident but really all these words in th are exactly similar truth exists ante rem just as much and as little as the other things do the scholastics following aristotle made much of the distinction between habit and act health in actu means among other things good sleeping and digesting but a healthy man need not always be sleeping or always digesting 
any more than a wealthy man need be always handling money, or a strong man always lifting weights. All such qualities sink to the status of habits between their times of exercise, and similarly truth becomes a habit of certain of our ideas and beliefs in their intervals of rest from their verifying activities. But those activities are the root of the whole matter, and the condition of there being any habit to exist in the intervals. The true, to put it very briefly, is only the expedient in the way of our thinking just as the right is only the expedient in the way of our behaving. Expedient in almost any fashion, and expedient in the long run, and on the whole of course. For what meets expediently all the experience in sight won't necessarily meet all farther experiences equally satisfactorily. Experience, as we know, has ways of boiling over, and making us correct our present formulas. The absolutely true, meaning what no farther experience will ever alter, is that ideal vanishing point towards we imagine that all our temporary truths will some day converge. It runs on all fours with the perfectly wise man, and with the absolutely complete experience, and, if these ideals are ever realized, they will all be realized together. Meanwhile, we have to live today by what truth we can get today, and be ready tomorrow to call it falsehood. Ptolemaic astronomy, Euclidean space, Aristotelian logic, scholastic metaphysics, were expedient for centuries, but human experience has boiled over those limits, and we now call these things only relatively true, or true within those borders of experience. Absolutely they are false, for we know that those limits were causal, and might have been transcended by past theories just as they are by present thinkers. When new experiences lead to retrospective judgments, using the past sense, what these judgments utter was true, even though no past thinker had been led there. We live forwards, a Danish thinker has said, but we understand backwards. The present sheds a backward light on the world's previous processes. They may have been truth processes for the actors in them. They are not so for one who knows the later revelations of the story. This regulative notion of a potential better truth to be established later, possibly to be established some day absolutely, and having powers of retroactive legislation, turns its face, like all pragmatist notions, towards concreteness of fact and towards the future. Like the half-truths, the absolute truth will have to be made, made as a relation incidental to the growth of a mass of verification experience, to which the half-true ideas are all along contributing their quota. I have already insisted on the fact that truth is made largely out of previous truths. Men's beliefs at any time are so much experience-funded, 
but the beliefs are themselves parts of the sum total of the world's experience and become matter therefore for the next day's funding operations so far as reality means experienceable reality both it and the truths men gain about it are everlastingly in process of mutation mutation towards definite goal it may be but still mutation mathematicians can solve problems with two variables on the newtonian theory for instance acceleration varies with distance but distance also varies with acceleration in the realm of truth processes facts come independently and determine our beliefs provisionally but these beliefs make us act and as fast as they do so they bring into sight or into existence new facts which redetermine the beliefs accordingly so the whole coil and ball of truth as it rolls up is the product of a double influence truths emerge from facts but they dip forward into facts again and add to them which facts again create or reveal new truth the word is indifferent and so on indefinitely the facts themselves meanwhile are not true they simply are truth is the function of the beliefs that start and terminate among them the case is like a snowball's growth due as it is to the distribution of the snow on the one hand and to the successive pushes of the boys on the other with these factors co-determining each other incessantly the most fateful point of difference between being a rationalist and being a pragmatist is now fully in sight experience is in mutation and our psychological ascertainments of truth are in mutation so much rationalism will allow but never that either reality itself or truth itself is mutable reality stands complete and ready-made from all eternity rationalism insists and the agreement of our ideas with it is that unique unanalyzable virtue in them of which she has already told us as that intrinsic excellence their truth has nothing to do with our experiences it adds nothing to the content of experience it makes no difference to reality itself it is supervenient inert static a reflection merely it doesn't exist it holds or obtains it belongs to another dimension from that of either facts or fact relations belongs in short to the epistemological dimension and with that big word rationalism closes the discussion thus just as pragmatism faces forward to the future so does rationalism here again face backward to a past eternity true to her inveterate habit rationalism reverts to principles and thinks that when an abstraction once is named we own an oracular solution the tremendous pregnancy in the way of consequences for life of this radical difference of outlook will only become apparent in my later lectures i wish meanwhile to close this lecture by showing that rationalism's sublimity does not save it from inanity 
When, namely, you ask rationalists, instead of accusing pragmatists of desecrating the notion of truth, to define it themselves by saying exactly what they understand by it, the only positive attempts I can think of are these two. 1. Truth is just a system of propositions which have an unconditional claim to be recognized as valid. Footnote A. E. Taylor Philosophical Review, Volume 14, page 288. 2. Truth is a name for all those judgments which we find ourselves under obligation to make by a kind of imperative duty. Footnote H. Rickert, Der Gegenstand der Erkenntnis, Chapter on Die Urteilnotwendigkeit. The first thing that strikes one in such definitions is their unutterable triviality. They are absolutely true, of course, but absolutely insignificant until you handle them pragmatically. What do you mean by claim here, and what do you mean by duty? As summary names for the concrete reasons why thinking in true ways is overwhelmingly expedient and good for mortal men, it is all right to talk of claims on reality's part to be agreed with and of obligations on our part to agree. We feel both the claims and the obligations, and we feel them for just those reasons. But the rationalists who talk of claim and obligation expressly say that they have nothing to do with our practical interests or personal reasons. Our reasons for agreeing are psychological facts, they say, relative to each thinker and to the accidents of his life. They are his evidence merely, they are no part of the life of truth itself. That life transacts itself in a purely logical or epistemological as distinguished from a psychological dimension, and its claims antedate and exceed all personal motivations whatsoever. Though neither man nor God should ever ascertain truth, the word would still have to be defined as that which ought to be ascertained and recognized. There never was a more exquisite example of an idea abstracted from the concretes of experience and then used to oppose and negate what it was abstracted from. Philosophy and common life abound in similar instances. The sentimentalist fallacy is to shed tears over abstract justice and generosity, beauty, etc., and never to know these qualities when you meet them in the street, because there the circumstances make them vulgar. Thus I read in the privately printed biography of an eminently rationalistic mind, it was strange that, with such admiration for beauty in the abstract, my brother had no enthusiasm for fine architecture, for beautiful painting, or for flowers. And in almost the last philosophic work I have read, I find such passages as the following. Justice is ideal, solely ideal. Reason conceives that it ought to exist, but experience shows that it cannot. Truth, which ought to be, cannot be. Reason is deformed by experience. As soon as reason enters experience, it becomes contrary to reason. 
the rationalist fallacy here is exactly like the sentimentalists both extract a quality from the muddy particulars of experience and find it so pure when extracted that they contrasted with each and all its muddy instances as an opposite and higher nature all the while it is their nature it is the nature of truths to be validated verified it pays for our ideas to be validated our obligation to seek truth is part of our general obligation to do what pays the payments true ideas bring are the sole why of our duty to follow them identical whys exist in the case of wealth and health truth makes no other kind of claim and imposes no other kind of ought than health and wealth do all these claims are conditional the concrete benefits we gain are what we mean by calling the pursuit a duty in the case of truth untrue beliefs work as perniciously in the long run as true beliefs work beneficially talking abstractly the quality true may thus be said to grow absolutely precious and the quality untrue absolutely damnable the one may be called good the other bad unconditionally we ought to think the true we ought to shun the false imperatively but if we treat all this abstraction literally and oppose it to its mother soil in experience see what a preposterous position we work ourselves into we cannot then take a step forward in our actual thinking when shall i acknowledge this truth and when that shall the acknowledgment be loud or silent if sometimes loud sometimes silent which now when may a truth go into cold storage in the encyclopedia and when shall it come out for battle must i constantly be repeating the truth twice two or four because of its eternal claim on recognition or is it sometimes irrelevant must my thoughts dwell night and day on my personal sins and blemishes because i truly have them or may i sink and ignore them in order to be a decent social unit and not a mass of morbid melancholy and apology it is quite evident that our obligation to acknowledge truth so far from being unconditional is tremendously conditioned truth with a big t and in the singular claims abstractly to be recognized of course but concrete truths in the plural needs be recognized only when the recognition is expedient a truth must always be preferred to falsehood when both relate to the situation but when neither does truth is as little of a duty as falsehood if you ask me what o'clock it is and i tell you that i live at ninety-five irving street my answer may indeed be true but you don't see why it is my duty to give it a false address would be as much to the purpose with this admission that there are conditions that limit the application of the abstract imperative the pragmatistic treatment of truth sweeps back upon us in its fullness our duty to agree with reality is seen to be grounded in a perfect jungle of concrete expediences 
When Berkeley had explained what people meant by matter, people thought that he denied matter's existence. When Mr. Schiller and Dewey now explain what people mean by truth, they are accused of denying its existence. These pragmatists destroy all objective standards, critics say, and put foolishness and wisdom on one level. A favorite formula for describing Mr. Schiller's doctrines and mine is that we are persons who think that by saying whatever you find it pleasant to say and calling it truth, you fulfill every pragmatistic requirement. I leave it to you to judge whether this be not an impudent slander. Pent in, as the pragmatist more than anyone else sees himself to be, between the whole body of funded truth squeezed from the past and the coercions of the world of sense about him, who so well as he feels the immense pressure of objective control under which our minds perform their operations? If anyone imagines that this law is lax, let him keep its commandment one day, says Emerson. We have heard much of late of the uses of the imagination in science. It is high time to urge the use of a little imagination in philosophy. The unwillingness of some of our critics to read any but the silliest of possible meanings into our statements is as discreditable to their imaginations as anything I know in recent philosophic history. Schiller says, the truth is that which works. Thereupon he is treated as one who limits verification to the lowest material utilities. Dewey says, truth is what gives satisfaction. He is treated as one who believes in calling everything true which, if it were true, would be pleasant. Our critics certainly need more imagination of realities. I have honestly tried to stretch my own imagination and to read the best possible meaning into the rationalist conception, but I have to confess that it still completely baffles me. The notion of reality calling on us to agree with, and that for no reason, but simply because its claim is unconditional or transcendent, is one that I can make neither head nor tail of. I try to imagine myself as the sole reality in the world, and then to imagine what more I would claim if I were allowed to. If you suggest the possibility of my claiming that a mind should come into being from out of the void inane and stand and copy me, I can indeed imagine what the copying might mean, but I can conjure up no motive. What good it would do me to be copied! or what good it would do that mind to copy me, if farther consequences are expressly and in principle ruled out as motives for the claim, as they are by our rationalist authorities, I cannot fathom. When the Irishman's admirers ran him along to the place of banquet in a sedan chair with no bottom, he said, Faith, if it wasn't for the honour of the thing, I might as well have come on foot so here, but for the honour of the thing I might as well have remained uncopied. Copying is one genuine mode of knowing, 
which for some strange reason our contemporary transcendentalists seem to be tumbling over each other to repudiate but when we get beyond copying and fall back on unnamed forms of agreeing that are expressly denied to be either copyings or leadings or fittings or any processes pragmatically definable the what of the agreement claimed becomes as unintelligible as the why of it neither content nor motive can be imagined for it it is an absolutely meaningless abstraction footnote i am not forgetting that professor rickard long ago gave up the whole notion of truth being founded on agreement with reality reality according to him is whatever agrees with truth and truth is founded solely on our primal duty this fantastic flight together with mr joachim's candid confession of failure in his book the nature of truth seems to me to mark the bankruptcy of rationalism when dealing with this subject rickert deals with part of the pragmatistic position under the head of what he calls relativismus i cannot discuss his text here suffice it to say that his argumentation in that chapter is so feeble as to seem almost incredible in so generally able a writer surely in this field of truth it is the pragmatists and not the rationalists who are the more genuine defenders of the universe's rationality end of lecture six